Blockchain technologies like Bitcoin and Ethereum have not yet impacted the lives of most consumers. The theoretical breakthroughs that blockchain technology enables will eventually happen. I will be able to pay one cent to a knowledge worker in Africa without having to pay a five cent transaction fee like I do today. My servers will be able to pay other servers for small compute jobs. We will have decentralized versions of sharing economy systems like Airbnb or Uber. But first, there are many infrastructure and policy issues to sort through. The technology is not quite there yet, and people running even simple mining operations are threatened by our current legal framework. Coin Center is an organization dedicated to education of policymakers and media about blockchain technology. Coin Center also is an advocate for certain policy changes. Peter Van Valkenburg directs research at Coin Center, and he joins the show to talk about the issues that stand in the way of that utopian dream of micropayments and IoT and other blockchain miracles that we will eventually have. I enjoyed this episode a lot. I hope you do too. Peter Van Valkenburg is the Director of Research at Coin Center. Peter, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me, Jeffrey. Today we're going to talk about blockchain technology and policy and how that exists today. But I want to start at the high-level, exciting, futuristic speculation stuff because I think that will better motivate a discussion around policy and engineering. Um, and specifically when I think about the the exciting futuristic speculation, I think about the micropayments. Like, I should be able to pay someone in India the equivalent of one penny for a transaction using the blockchain. So when we think about that idea of the, you know, paying somebody across the world one penny, um, or we think about things like microtransactions between servers, uh, what are the barriers to those that exist today? Are they mostly technical or are they at all regulatory? Actually, finding a, a single scapegoat, either technical or regulatory, is hard. But what we can talk about is your existing options. And your existing options are the, you know, what, what I might call the legacy payment rails. Um, and that's going to look like either credit card transactions or something more heavy duty like a bank transfer or possibly one of these newer systems that is uh, a centralized payment system where you can pay other people who are users of the same system. And, and of course, the good examples of those are things like Venmo or PayPal or, or, or things like that. Um, so then to, to talk about, like, are any of those good for microtransactions? Um, the centralized systems are, are, are probably good for microtransactions. Like, um, what did I buy? I bought something that was two, two bucks uh, with PayPal and there was no fee because they took it from my bank account uh, and I, they were paying someone else on PayPal can't remember what it was but that worked although that's still uh bigger than what you were suggesting which was um a couple cents and then the other problem with something like paypal or venmo is you can only pay other people who use paypal or venmo they have to sign up they have to connect their bank account to that and fund that and the funding transaction to actually set that all up is a transaction that's going to happen on the legacy systems whether a credit card or uh, as i said a heavy duty type thing like a bank transfer or a wire transfer so what we really want is a, you know, an open, interoperable system 
that just makes payments as simple as sending packets of data across the internet, right? I mean, from a technical engineering standpoint, from the standpoint of, I'm assuming, your audience, that's just what makes sense, and it seems silly that we still don't have that. Um, just a ledger. Right, a ledger, just a way to move value um, between peers on a network without having to worry about some sort of centralized intermediary, and also without having to worry about prohibitive fees that make a small transaction like five seconds, like paying for time on a server or paying in order to um, you know, read a little bit of content or listen to a little bit of a podcast, makes those kinds of payments um, infeasible. And the reason for that is uh, any credit card transaction, and you know, most of us who've bought stuff online, we always use credit cards generally. Um, any credit card transaction is going to necessarily carry with it a... Um, a minimum fee. And the way the fee structures, they're different, whether it's Visa or MasterCard, depending on the, the credit card network. But the way the fee structures usually work, there's a flat fee, which is somewhere between $0.05 cents and $0.15, cents, sometimes even more. And then there's a, a, a marginal fee that's related to the size of the transaction. But that flat fee there is, is the thing that's deadly to microtransactions for the internet, or really microtransactions generally, because if what you're um, buying, basically, is something that's worth about you know, half a penny to you, like, what's it worth to read just the, just the lead paragraph of a Wall Street Journal article, you know? It's it's not it's not much. Nothing against the Wall Street Journal, but you know. But but honestly, it also would be cool if we could monetize that because the way the Wall Street Journal gets by um, is by monetizing their content. But they can only do it in a big lump sum. You sign up for a, a Wall Street Journal subscription, and you get access to their all of their articles. You can't just read a little bit. You can't just read um, a lead paragraph. And part of that's because they want they want to get you and they want to have you pay for more than you're actually consuming and gain the upside of that basically in the transaction. But also part of it's because if there's a 15 cent flat fee, they'd never um, they'd ever be able to charge just for reading the lead paragraph in an article because the fee to make that transaction go through would be greater than the amount they were receiving uh, in payment for reading that article. Yeah, and so that's definitely a good example. There's also like I really think about the example of there's somebody in a place like India or Africa that has knowledge worker ability mm-hmm. and I should be able to pay them, you know, a, a small amount to do some sort of creative knowledge work. This type of knowledge work will that that we outsource to individual contractors. This stuff is going to increase as time goes on and we need less friction um, so that there can be more global transactions. We can have a uh, more um, mutually interdependent um, financial system, a a commerce system. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, if we have these balkanized payment systems where there are transaction, there are high transaction fees for even micro transactions. Right. Then even you know even if they're warranted or if they're in some sense the money is going towards preventing fraud, um, it's they're still onerous charges. Well, and 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 that actually gets back to your original question, which I sort of uh, weaseled away from, which was either e- is it either. Um, regulatory uh, costs or these actual technical costs, um, there is definitely a regulatory element. So all of these financial institutions that your payment goes through when you're using a credit card, for example. So a lot of people don't realize how credit cards actually work. They just take them for granted. 
um, you were issued your credit card by an issuing bank. So that's the first party that the transaction actually runs through. And then the issuing bank has an agreement with the credit card operator, network operator, or sometimes they're just called the switch. And that's Visa. That's MasterCard. And then the third party here, and and there's always at least three parties in these online transactions, is the bank of the recipient who is, uh, that bank is a merchant processor bank for the credit card as well, or, or just a, another, you know, uh, card issuing bank if you're paying another individual, basically. Um, but it's going to be a merchant processor in cases where you're actually paying for a service, for example. So which, which, with each of those three parties, and especially the two banking parties, you're talking about pretty heavy-duty regulatory compliance burdens. Um, and some of the costs of complying with, say, any money laundering requirements here in the U.S. under the Bank Secrecy Act, for example, which, which has to do with you know, keeping real close uh, track of who all your customers are, uh, where they're living, what their, you know, what their identifying information is, and then also monitoring some of their transactions and reporting suspicious ones or particularly large ones to the federal authorities. Something we might call fed, uh, financial surveillance uh, if we wanted to be less charitable than the than the otherwise seemingly innocuous AML KYC compliance. Um, that has costs. And then additionally, also, credit cards pay their users to use them. So like when you get airline miles or uh, rewards points from your credit card, some of the fees that you're paying per transaction are going actually to provide you those rewards, uh, which is a strange system, um, but, but a system that actually gets a lot of people to you know switch from one card to another. So it's sort of a marketing tactic because you want that first class trip to India for vacation or something. Although that is, that is an example of the type of inefficiency, well, the type of tax that we're paying at a core fundamental level with the types of systems that we have. I think there are also other taxes. Yeah, There, there, There are also other taxes that we pay in terms of the fact that these older systems are running on this horrific infrastructure and there's all kinds of inefficiencies that are going to, you know, going to have all kinds of leakages because of that. And that's why it's, you know, having some greenfield systems might be good, even though I hear that a lot of these greenfield systems are eventually kind of being built on this old aging infrastructure mm-hmm. with FTP stuff between banks and um, and I, wa- I want to get into that okay so, so another another but another like futuristic high level thing is this dream that we have about like IOT stuff like we have this dream of being able to walk into Starbucks and you get a cup of coffee and you're charged for it without having to do anything you don't have to interact with a barista or anything you just get the coffee yep. and my phone just communicates to the blockchain it, what so what is at this intersection of IOT and cryptocurrencies is this stuff where we can start to be thinking about policy sure absolutely um yeah, so in order to get there, we, we've kind of skipped straight from legacy payments to blockchain and the, and the simple <laughs> the simple what is Bitcoin or what is cryptocurrency answer to, to, to build that bridge is, all right, so you had three different ledgers with the, th- with the two banks and the credit card network and all of them keeping track of user balances or partner balances. Consolidate all those ledgers into one, call it a blockchain. Uh, it's a data structure that exists redundantly uh, across multiple computers connected to the network. 
um, and those multiple computers, which are actually often the computers of users who just want to pay other users, those multiple computers hopefully do some sort of trusted multi-party calculation of some sort that results in consensus or agreement from the nodes that the current state of the ledger of who has paid who, which user has paid who, is valid and non-fraudulent. No one's tried to pay somebody twice with the same funds. Um, in other words, duplicated or counterfeited currency. And that is the magical invention that is Bitcoin, and it really is a computer science breakthrough. Um, it uses all sorts of you know, long-standing and well-understood components like peer-to-peer -peer networking um, technology, like uh, hash functions, uh, SHA-256 and elliptical curves, um, but it combines them in a novel way that creates this distributed computing system that is able to create an authoritative ledger of all transactions. So then to get into IoT, so, so that solves payments potentially, and, and I'm not suggesting that we're there right now with the Bitcoin network, because actually uh, with the block size limit as it is right now, you might expect to pay 15 cents per transaction using Bitcoin too, which is interesting. Um, we can talk about that more later if it's something you think your readers would be interested in and what the block size debate is. But it's actually kind of an arbitrary cap in, in many ways and, and not something we would reasonably expect to persist. Maybe in Bitcoin it'll persist, maybe not in other systems. So there probably is an answer here for micropayments. Uh, and it also might involve new technologies like the Lightning Network, which we can discuss as well. But your question, yeah. your question was about IoT. And, and the simple intuition here is, OK, if we have a, an authoritative list of transactions that are effectively uh, time-stamped relative to other transactions, so they're bundled in an order, and the order is something everyone agrees on, then we kind of have um, the state of a very limited computer. Uh, a global computer of a sort. Um, we have an order of uh, events that alter the state of that ledger, and in, in many ways, that's a compute function. Now, we could do more than just keep track of scarce balances with this, um, you know, with this stately data structure. We could notify, uh, we, could, we, could, we could notice and allow people to um, announce when an identity uh, accorded, uh, assigned to a, a device has either... Um, been been attested to by an individual. So it's like this is this is my laptop. I'm signing this 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 device will identify itself as my laptop because I'm signing a, a, a transaction statement with elliptical curve type signature. Or this is my cell phone. Um, Starbucks would say this is our our POS our, our payment system, and and these devices can then have an open ledger of device identity which is basically one half of what you need in order to have that, that ideal world with IoT where you just walk into a building that has things that you want, you take the things that you want, and there's this handshake behind the scenes that identifies who did the taking, who did the selling, and, and then actually furthers the payment as well. So really seamless, um, you know, utopian, techno-utopian techno uh, commerce uh, because you have identity, for devices that can be trusted and is interoperable and open, and because all that data resides on this identity type blockchain, and you have payments between those identified devices or parties because you have uh, a blockchain for transactions and micropayments. And they might be on the same blockchain, they might be on different blockchains. Um, there's all kinds of ways you could architect the system. The bottom line is you get this consensus over a data structure and, and a stateful data structure. So you could do identity, you could do transactions, you could do all kinds of computation. Yeah, and my sense is that where we are today, the we we will get we'll get into the regulatory stuff, but my sense is that today 
the big barriers to this type of utopia becoming a reality are technical barriers because what was outlined in the Bitcoin paper and mm-hmm. what has been done in the implementation since then, uh, there, there's a big gulf between the big Bitcoin dream that was that was outlined in that paper that what what this theoretically could become and the infrastructure that we've built because when you smash all these computer science concepts together <laughs> that Satoshi did you know it's like oh my goodness we need to build a lot of infrastructure to make this a possibility and that's why there's such a misunderstanding about like the hype cycle around yeah. Bitcoin where people are saying oh there's no killer app for Bitcoin it's like okay w- where's the uh, you know why would you build um, you know, and an, uh, why would you build an internet that looks anything like the internet we have today if we had just dial-up? It would look right. totally different, and that's where we are today with Bitcoin. Is we're we're at dial-up stage. I think that's right. Yeah, Mark, Mark Andreessen, the the venture capitalist at Andreessen Horowitz, um, wrote an article maybe three years ago now, I think, saying that you know Bitcoin looks like the internet in 1996. And that was three years ago, which means we should be at Internet, uh, you know, 99 or 2000 by now. And um, I don't think we're seeing that with Bitcoin. I don't think we're seeing the, you know, that means Google should be emerging now. That means real killer apps for the Internet should be emerging right now. And we're not seeing killer apps emerging for Bitcoin. So I I think he optimistically um, miscalculated. And I think he's brilliant. I don't mean to, you know, future prediction is hard. Um, but is I th- there any chance that, that Google? Well, I was going to say Google is. I was just going to say that I, I think the real date is probably closer to m- maybe 1986. Like we're at the we're at the beginnings mm-hmm. of widespread use of TCP/IP. We're not at the beginnings of HTML and the higher level protocols that enabled the highly useful web that we have today on top of the internet. What about that company Twenty One? I yeah. mean, that's a company yeah. that uh, Andreessen has invested in. I think it was an X. Uh, A16Z partner that started this company, 21 yeah, Co. That's uh, that, Apology Stream Vossen, yeah. Yeah, and this is like a massively, um, they've raised a ton of money and they're building some Bitcoin technologies. I mean, maybe that's the Google of Bitcoin, right? It, it could be. And, and, and um, you know, based on the beginning of our, our conversation today, uh, they're aiming in the right direction. So what they're trying to do is really nail device payments, so machine-to-machine payments uh, using these systems. Um, their first, uh, I hesitate to call it a, a product because it was sort of a, a dev kit, was this this 21 Bitcoin computer, which was basically a, a, a Bitcoin full node with the capability of mining also, and uh, basically an SDK that would help you as a, as a developer write any number of programs that could utilize Bitcoin for for payments, and that could be, uh, you know, build an API such that uh, whenever um, someone pays you, um, your Twitter account will tweet, uh, you know, hello world or something like that. Um, So connecting any number of digital goods that you might want to sell, including, say, your your influence, uh, if, if we're talking about, you know, pay for tweets, uh, to a payment system and, a, and an electronic marketplace that was liquid that can that can actually you know handle that unlike the existing credit card system which of course cannot handle that. So, you know we're we're, we're we've been skating around a lot of different topics around around Bitcoin, but I want to get into the Coin Center. So you work for the Coin Center. What is the Coin Center? 
Sure, sure, sure. Uh, a small technical note: we try and drop the the, <laughs> like like Facebook. We're not the. <laughs> so, Coin Center, um, and we also put a space between Coin and Center. It's so funny how in the internet there's all these strange norms about intercaps and unifying words and things like this. But anyway, I'm digressing horribly. Coin Center is um, a nonprofit uh, research and advocacy center. Um, and we're based here in Washington, D.C., where I'm uh, recording from right now. And we've been set up for one very specific purpose, and that is to guarantee that open blockchain networks, so things like Bitcoin, things like Ethereum, that open blockchain networks get the same benefit from a policy and governance standpoint that the early Internet got. And the early Internet benefited tremendously from a basically a, a hands-off approach that was uh, probably best pushed for and evidenced by the Clinton administration's principles for the information superhighway, which there were a number of principles there. I won't go through all of them, but it's things like the private sector should lead. Uh, where regulation is necessary, it should be light touch and, and activities-based, not technologies-based. So there were a lot of things that came together uh, on, the, on the regulatory side that I think um, helped hasten the development of the internet. Um, it could have been a lot slower and a lot worse if policymakers had not been well educated on these topics. I mean, people make fun of Al Gore, but he was actually pretty well educated on these topics. Had, had also um, no, that they well understood the upsides of those new technologies and maybe only focused on the downsides um, and then had not sort of cleared the path for um, free and those technologies by either um, subtly adjusting existing laws or by refraining from um, um, things that would have encumbered people's abilities to innovate using the technologies. So the same issues that the internet had, um, open blockchain networks have, and they might even have it worse because they deal um, quite often and, and actually at a fundamental level with a, a scarce token is money. And whenever you know money enters the picture, it's kind of the original sin it changes some of the um, some of the risk and benefit calculations that someone like a policymaker might do. Um, we have a, a really good tradition of protecting speech and people's abilities to speak in the U.S., and we also have a pretty good tradition of protecting their privacy. Um, you know, and Snowden leaks aside, we've got at least some you know expectation of privacy over our personal data. Um, it's interesting with with money. Um, money is speech in a way, but uh, you know, do you have an absolute right to always pay people? Uh, actually, not. You you right now cannot pay someone in Iran, for example. If you did, you'd be in violation of OFAC sanction laws, and the penalties could actually be quite strict. And then, from a privacy standpoint, um, we actually have no right to privacy over our financial data. None whatsoever, basically, uh, assuming we use any financial intermediary like a bank or a credit card company. Uh, at that moment, we lose any right to the privacy of those, those, those transactions. And that's why um, this financial surveillance regime that I was describing um, is, is so robust, basically. Uh, any transaction you make over $10,000 will be reported to FinCEN unless you're doing it through an institution that is rogue, which I wouldn't recommend. <laughs> so Coin Center is focused on um, education. You want to educate policymakers. Mm -hmm. You want to educate the media. You also have an element of advocacy. So you right. do take certain stances on areas of the blockchain. Where do you stand on financial surveillance? Yeah, yeah. So it's a good question. Um, 
we haven't been uh, sort of a firebrand in that area, primarily mm-hmm. because there are other issues um, that are of, <laughs> of, of prime importance. So just the ability yeah. of people to even start a business in this space yeah. is, is one of them. Um, but, you know, I'll say this. So, so we generally don't regulate individuals. OFAC is the exception there from a financial privacy standpoint. It's not even privacy. It just means you can't pay people in Iran. But from a privacy standpoint, we generally regulate institutions, not individuals. So uh, there's a number of companies out there, Bank of America, et cetera, et cetera, who all have to register with FinCEN as a bank or as a money services business. So PayPal is a money services business. Airbnb is probably, yeah, I'm quite certain is a money services business because they move money from their rentors to their rentees. Um, And when you register, you also need to track your users and report their transactions if they're either suspicious or over $10,000, as I said. And you need to do really good, um, know your customer, so you need to find out a certain amount of information about them. And there's no way around that. Now, there's an open question, or there was an open question, rather, when Bitcoin first emerged. Is a company that does something with Bitcoin, and that something could be a variety of things, like hold other people's Bitcoins. It could be we mine Bitcoin transactions. It could be we build software that help people hold their own Bitcoins. So like a blockchain.info, which creates a wallet uh, product, basically, that allows people to hold their own coins. Are any of those companies the kinds of financial institutions that under the Bank Secrecy Act, FinCEN is allowed to, to mandate that they register and do that kind of anti-money laundering financial surveillance regulation on those companies? And FinCEN settled that in 2013 with what was called the virtual currency guidance um, and said, basically, if you are a, if you're an exchange or a hosted wallet provider, uh, so like a Coinbase or a Zappo or a Circle, then you are a financial institution. And then in a series of other uh, opinions, because that original guidance was somewhat vague in some areas, they pretty well clarified that miners, for example, do not need to register. They are not regulated financial institutions in that sense for surveillance purposes. And neither are software producers who merely make a Bitcoin wallet. Um, Now, where we would take a very strong stand with regard to financial surveillance is that that current, um, we can call it a compromise, that current compromise needs to stand, and we cannot move in the direction of, of mandating that people who just design software that other people use build sort of backdoors into that software that will monitor those users' activities. So blockchain.info, as a provider of hold-your-own-Bitcoin software wallets, should not be forced to spy on the people who use their software. And a miner, so someone who mines transactions, validates transactions on any of these open blockchains, blockchain networks, as an infrastructure provider, despite the fact that they may have some visibility into these networks, should not be mandated to do um, that kind of surveillance either. Um, we want to keep the set of surveilled entities to those who are traditionally regulated by these laws, and that is people who hold other people's money for them. Um, you know, banks, uh, PayPal, and yeah, Coinbase and Zappo and Circle, but not uh, Bitfury, but not uh, Blockchain.info. So I want to vacillate back to the engineering side of things. We'll get back to policy. The blockchains, or the sorry, the block size mm-hmm. that you mentioned earlier. Um, <clears throat> so what what is the debate around block size? Um, give some more color on 
how engineering of Bitcoin is going today. I think I, I, mm-hmm. I'm starting to hear this basically that if you are a cut if you're cutting edge if you're like if you're a liberal uh, blockchainist you 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 hack on ethereum and if you're a conservative <laughs> blockchainist you hack on bitcoin because bitcoin is sticks more to the things that are outlined in the bitcoin paper like it was handed down um, to moses uh, and ethereum is a little more aggressive in how they're how they're changing things uh, just give me a snapshot of the of the engineering landscape. Sure, I, I think you're right that there there does almost appear to be an ideological difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin, and you could say that that is um, uh, a political one, like liberal and conservative, or just a, a general approach to how things should be built. And there are positives and negatives to say about either side in that debate. You could call the Ethereum people naive. And um, and too risk seeking basically because they'll they'll build things rapidly, iterate rapidly, and those things often break. As in, say, the case of the DAO, which was the largest crowdfund in history and also one of the greatest failures <laughs> to do a successful crowdfund in history. But you could say about the Bitcoin people, as as you were hinting, that you, this is uh, a dogmatism that is um, not based on reason, but based on the fact that it was handed down from Moses Satoshi. Um, but you could also say positive things about each. So uh, Ethereum developers tend to seem less encumbered by a pre-existing um, bias as to what the system should look like, what it should accomplish, and seem perhaps more focused on just building technology that works to do any number of things, not just the one thing you liked, which was, say, um, intermediary list payments. Uh, but then you could say positive things about the Bitcoin developers as well. You could say something like, well, they understand that the foundation of any uh, trusted system needs to be simple because as it becomes more complex, the attack surface broadens and it becomes more vulnerable and the whole thing could crumble. And take the Internet, for example, TCP IP is very simple and it's a great base layer to build more interesting layers on top of, whether it's HTML um, whether it's uh, SSL, uh, you know, whether it's anything that you you want uh, to, to to describe the packets that are moving over the relatively purpose agnostic and secure lower layer. Um, so that's one way I would characterize the two, and I love both, quite frankly. Um, and then you asked about the block size, which is which is which is sort of evidence of the deep conservatism, as you suggested, of the the Bitcoin developers. So the core software um, that Bitcoin uh, is powered by has a number of consensus rules. And consensus rules are everything from uh, no transaction can reference an already spent input transaction. In other words, you can't try and spend the same Bitcoins twice. That would be fraud and and counterfeiting. Another consensus rule, however, is that... um, New blocks, so new bundles of transactions that have occurred roughly over the last you know ten or so minutes, cannot exceed a megabyte in size. And um, you get down to the technical specifics. Uh, that means that given the size of any individual transaction, the maximum number of transactions you can have per second on average ends up being around um, seven if you're uh, liberal in your calculations. And actually, in practice, we find that the network gets very creaky around two or three transactions per second, which if you think about um, what Visa 
uh, advertises about their credit card authorizations. And I would quibble that Visa is just doing authorizations. They're not doing settlement, but they still, you know, do these authorizations. Visa does on the order of 40,000, 50,000 per second, I think. And I've heard that they've built data center capacity to handle as much as 200,000 or 500,000. Who knows? You know, it's, it's, out, it's orders of magnitude larger. So it is a problem that the block has this one megabyte cap if you really want Bitcoin transactions, as in, you know, I sign a transaction message with my private key and send that transaction, basically, or, or enumerate in that transaction a recipient based on their Bitcoin address and hope that that goes to the blockchain and makes it into the ledger. If you want to do global payments in that setup using Bitcoin, you're going to hit some real uh, limits as far as throughput, and the main one. So the, the main so, one I'm being sorry, so that, ju- that just to just oh, sure, just sure. to clarify. So you're saying that the blockchain, the global blockchain, can accept two to seven transactions per second. The Bitcoin blockchain, yeah, and 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 the reason for that limitation, to be also very clear, is an arbitrary variable in the Bitcoin software. It's not necessarily network latency or any number of other real technical problems. It's actually a line of code in the Bitcoin core client that says that blocks cannot be larger than a megabyte. And if your Bitcoin client recognizes blocks that are larger than a megabyte, your data will be ignored from the consensus as um, prima facie invalid. Um, So, and in a sense, so uh, I guess the is the reason that that is actually somewhat defensible, somewhat well-reasoned, mm-hmm. is you could say, well, you know, we want at the most fundamental level of the Bitcoin blockchain there to be very low constraints on the bandwidth exactly. that you need, and then, you know, we could build these things on top of it that, based on the trust that develops at the lower layer, mm-hmm. uh, or based on other systems that you want to build on, um, on top of that lower layer, you can you can build the speed, and that's what lightning networks are. Yes. Yeah, so that, that, that's exactly right. Um, that's, that's the argument that those who are vehemently against changing that arbitrary variable to be a larger cap or removing a cap altogether, that's the argument that those who are, who are against that change uh, make, which is we want this thing to be a minimum, minimum viable product, basically, for doing settlement and then you could basically build higher level networks that batch a bunch of transactions into one or two transactions and those one or two transactions are the ones that end up in the blockchain and these are like automated clearing houses yeah kind of like automated clearing houses but ideally the automated clearing houses also would be um, basically trust minimized so that you don't you don't reinvent the correspondent banking system you 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 basically use cryptography to bundle transaction messages in a way that doesn't rely on on putting the faith in any intermediary parties. Um, and the Lightning Network's pretty complex, so it's probably beyond the scope of a of a shorter podcast. Um, but it 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 generally achieves that in theory, and we're seeing actual prototypes begin to emerge now that would basically accomplish that. Sure. No, we did a show about a year ago with. Rusty Russell, oh, awesome. who works, yeah, he works at Blockstream, mm-hmm. I think, and that was all about Lightning Networks. And th- I mean, this is Rusty Russell. I think was one of the early contributors to Linux. Yeah, I think he was like number two to Linus Torvalds for a while, mm-hmm. and that gives you some perspective in terms of the talent oh, that yeah. is working on these things. Yeah, 
Yeah, and 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 this concern about big blocks, which you you hinted at, is is very real too. It's not just that the network would get slow um, because of the limitations of bandwidth in a peer to peer network. It's also that with um, limitations on bandwidth, you would create some perverse incentives that could defeat the main goals of the Bitcoin project. And those perverse incentives basically look like if you're a miner you get an advantage generally of being the first to receive a message that another miner has completed a block. Because if that block is valid and added to the chain and you want to build the next block on top of it, the faster you get that previous block, which is a necessary input to your next block, the more likely you'll hit upon the next block before any of your competitors. So if the blocks are big and you actually have real latency, there becomes a real strong incentive for miners to geographically co-locate. And they'll probably all geographically locate in an area with very uh, affordable power or electricity because these mining rigs are, are electrically intensive, which means you could very realistically, if the block size increased, have a greater chance of all the miners ending up up in um, western China near a hydroelectric dam that was built for a town that never materialized, for example, which, which is actually quite common, or maybe all in Iceland, or maybe all in the Pacific Northwest of America, although that seems less likely given the regulatory risks you'd be potentially assuming. But no matter what, if, if all the miners end up in one small area, um, how trust minimized is that system at that point. Because if all the miners act together in concert for a prolonged period of time, they can do a lot of harm, basically. They can effectively just block or selectively censor uh, people from transacting using the network if they don't like their politics or their uh, history or any number of other things about them. Or they could potentially rearrange the chain um, starting from the time that they assumed that majority power uh, up till the present, uh, potentially, uh, you know, fooling people into thinking that they'd paid and then and then having them pay again. Hmm. Okay, so now we have dove a little into the technical aspects. Um, I would love to hear more about how Ethereum technically compares to Bitcoin, but I want to I want to bounce back to the policy mm-hmm. discussion. Um, so. One thing the Coin Center is concerned about is consumer protection. Mm -hmm. So consumers engage with an entity like Coinbase, and Coinbase functions something like a bank. But the difference from the consumer protection point of view is that the the policymakers need to understand how to enact laws that protect consumers without infringing on the technological process mm-hmm. uh, uh, sorry the technological progress mm-hmm. of Bitcoin. So so why is this a tricky line to walk? Why is it tricky for policymakers to figure out a way to effectively regulate a organization like a coinbase sure. while not um, infringing on the technological progress mm-hmm. that might occur? So with consumer protection and with the U.S. specifically as our, our regulatory um, landscape, we're already at a disadvantage compared to, say, uh, the European Union or uh, other foreign states. And that's because in the U.S., consumer protection for money transmitters, that is to say people who hold and then move people's money who are not banks, those are money transmitters. Consumer protection for money transmitters is done historically, and somewhat by accident perhaps, at the state level. So 
Alabama does consumer protection uh, regulation. New York does consumer protection regulation. And the federal government actually doesn't do too much consumer protection regulation. They don't license and permit businesses to exist. They wait for the states to do that and then maybe enforce some other consumer protection concerns through individual actions against bad actors. So what the states are doing, what every one of the 47 states and territories that regulate um, money transmission for consumer protection purposes are doing is basically saying no one's allowed to do this unless they first get in touch with us and then get a license to do this with customers in this state. And that doesn't mean that if you're a business in New York, you only need to worry about New York as far as getting a license from the, the regulator in that state. If you are a business in New York that creates a, a, a Bitcoin service like, um, say, um, like Coinbase, for example, you're going to need a license in every U.S. state where you have customers. And because the Internet usually is, well, global, you're going to have customers from day one potentially anywhere and probably in many states and hopefully if you're successful, all of the states. So that means you're going to have to actually get permission from a regulator in every one of the 47 states and territories that regulates this. And getting permission from them is not easy. It's especially not easy when you're doing something that's new because, you know, regulators are smart people, but they're smart people who have focused their whole lives on legacy technologies and guaranteeing consumer protection for those technologies. So the companies that uh, a money transmission regulator in Iowa are used to dealing with are Western Union, you know, the, the original telecommunications provider, or, or, at, or, or maybe at the most exotic, PayPal, you know, which emerged about, you know, what, 10, 15 years ago on, for, for, for them. Um, you're not up to speed on Bitcoin, and you have no idea what, what, you know, these technologies even are, virtual currencies, or what necessarily you're supposed to require from these companies that are suddenly asking you to give them a license to have customers in, in your state. And on top of that, um, your laws... So as a regulator, you have obligations, basically, that are set down in legislation. You need to protect consumers from, um, you know, risky money transmitters, basically, by licensing them. But in the statute, money is defined as the currency of a, of a, of a foreign nation or of the U.S. Well, wait a minute. Bitcoin's not money, according to that definition. Do we even have the statutory obligation to regulate these companies? So in some states... Bitcoin doesn't fit the definition of money or a business like Coinbase that uses Bitcoin, even though Bitcoin fits the definition of money, doesn't fit that state's definition of money transmission. And regulators have to figure that out. Lawyers have to figure that out. Um, and then there's beyond that even the question of whether you as a regulator are are interested in dealing with this issue. And the bottom line is, uh, as resource constrained as, re as a lot of regulators are, especially at the state level, many of them just haven't wanted to deal with this question. So even if you're a Coinbase and you're a company that really wants to get regulated because you don't want uh, someone knocking on your door at the middle of the night saying you were an unlicensed money transmitter and you're going to jail for five years, because by the way, that's the criminal penalty for that. Um, even if you're trying to do the right thing, you're going to call up someone potentially in, in some state in middle America and they're going to say, you do what with what? I don't know if you need a license. I'm not giving you a license. Um, you know, maybe check in later. But in the meantime, we're not going to tell you you're safe. We're not going to tell you you don't need a license for this period where you're unlicensed. Um, and that's not really 
That doesn't give you a warm, fuzzy feeling as somebody who's building this technology or building a business, because that means that somebody could knock on your door in the middle of the night and say, actually, even though you called us and asked, you did need a license for the last two years where we didn't give you a license. And so you were in violation for those two years. And now we can seek penalties. Um, So Coin Center's mission when it comes to consumer protection regulation here in the U.S., very specific issue, is twofold. It's to make sure that if you are a company that holds other people's money, that there is an easy path for you to get regulated. Because it makes sense that if you're holding other people's money, there should be consumer protection regulation. And that means either preempting state laws uh, through an act of Congress, which is politically not viable right now, quite frankly. That's just a lot of political capital because you'd be basically, you know, doing something quite bold from the federal level and stepping on a lot of people's authority at the state level. Or it means getting all the states to sort of agree that this should be the common approach to licensing Bitcoin companies. But, but that means uh, going state by state, educating them on the technology, uh, analyzing their laws to see if the existing laws cover these activities. And then if they don't cover these activities or if they cover them in a way that doesn't work, um, that, that would simply make it impossible for Coinbase to get licensed, but would still make them responsible for getting licensed, finding a way to amend those laws such that we can find a way forward. But that approach, um, as my colleague Jerry Brito likes to say, scale. Um, and Coinbase, uh, Coin Center, rather, we, we try our best to go state by state and get in touch with any regulator who's turning to these issues. So, for example, in New York, uh, Benjamin Lossky at the Department of Financial Services turned to these issues right when we were getting started with the bit license. And we actually didn't particularly like how the bit license came out. Um, We've done a lot better in some other states since then. No matter what, it, the approach doesn't scale. It's sort of reactive, and we're, we'd have to get all 47 states and territories on board. So recently, we've been given a gift, actually, in, in this struggle from the one of the oldest financial regulators in the U.S., the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. Um, the OCC is the uh, federal agency that it's a, it's a branch of Treasury, actually. It's the federal uh, regulator who charters national banks. So most of the big banks are nationally chartered banks. And the OCC is their consumer protection regulator, basically, alongside the Fed and the FDIC for insurance purposes. The OCC uh, issued an innovation white paper uh, last spring, basically, that said, hey, uh, it was really quite frank and amazing. It said, hey, the U.S. is falling behind on fintech, on f- financial technologies innovation. We're falling behind the U.K., we're falling behind Singapore, and we're partly to blame. The OCC is actually saying that they are part of the problem. Um, so it was actually a mea culpa and and kind of surprising. It's not something you usually hear from a regulator, um, that sort of admission of, <laughs> of, of fault. And they said, look, we're, we're open to, to new suggestions as to how to improve U.S. competitiveness in financial technologies. And they said, uh, one thing we're going to do is create a central office of innovation. Um, and, you know, we're not all that bullish on anything centralized. So hopefully that'll, that'll um But they also said, uh, well, we're open to your suggestions as well. And so Coin Center, along with some other companies in the virtual currency space, and also some marketplace lenders who also have issues with state-by-state regulation, um, so like LendingTree and things like that, uh, all of these groups got together and, and issued a bunch of different comments, most of them asking for a federal fintech charter. So you, as a, as a, as a company that builds some sort of innovative financial tool, uh, or service, and that would include 
someone like Coinbase, who builds virtual currency tools and services, can apply potentially, and this is not yet the law, but hopefully will be, can apply for a charter from the OCC. And that charter is kind of like being a chartered bank, but it's more limited. So maybe you won't be able to take deposits in dollars, because that's something we only want banks to do. And maybe you won't be able to do lending, because that has to do with the dollar money supply. Um, but what you could do is have access to the, to, the, to the payment system, so that you could, I could ACH or send, a, 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 send a, a, a payment message to Coinbase from my bank, and Coinbase could process it directly, rather than having to go through a banking partner to process it. And the other thing you'd get from this is federal preemption of your state money transmission obligations, because national banks don't need to worry about state laws. So it would be a way through the sort of wilderness of conflicting state laws if there was this vehicle, if Coinbase could say, we want to become an OCC-chartered, nationally-chartered fintech firm, then they wouldn't have to worry about the 47 states and territories anymore. I've got another half of that, if you've got a second. I know this is really long-winded. So the other half of this is the other problem is that those 47 different states and territories that all have different definitions of money and of money transmission, some of those definitions are so broad that you could easily interpret them to cover a miner, a Bitcoin miner. In fact, you could probably interpret them as covering um, someone who just develops uh, Bitcoin software or someone who runs a full node in their living room uh, in order to relay transactions on the peer-to-peer network. And that means that even those parties potentially would need to get licensed. Uh, And that is a huge, heavy burden and a sort of gating or permissioning that we would not want to see happen because it would really stifle the development of these technologies. This is one of those laws that had an analog with the Internet that would have potentially stifled the development of the Internet. Uh, So how do we fix that? Notice the OCC charter option doesn't solve that person's problems because they don't hold other people's money. They do a non-custodial infrastructure type function on the Bitcoin network or the Ethereum network. They're not going to go apply to become a nationally chartered bank. That doesn't make sense for them. But they still have to worry about 47 states and territories and their various vaguely drafted laws. So for that, Coin Center has proposed, um, we sort of sketched or outlined a possible federal legislation that would be an act of Congress, but would be a a lower, um, a smaller ask from Congress than asking them to fully preempt state-by-state money transmission. And what it would be is a safe harbor. So Congress would say something like, states play a vital role in consumer protection for money transmission. However, there are a set of activities wherein people provide infrastructure to these virtual currency networks, there are a set of activities that should never be or shall never be treated as money transmission by any state. And thereby, that federal law would create this safe harbor that would ensure that somebody who's just developing Bitcoin software or running a Bitcoin node on the peer-to-peer network never needs to worry about any one of the 47 states and territories that potentially could regulate them. That's also very important to us. Um, I'll add, we're, we, we are aiming to be um, advocates for the technology in general, not any particular company in the space. So we're more like the Electronic Frontier Foundation than, say, the Internet Association. We're uh, an independent nonprofit who, 
who wants to facilitate the growth of the technology. And so this aspect of, of um, the money transmission problem is actually probably our top priority, is making sure that the people who are just you know garage innovators, independent software developers, uh, people running nodes in their living rooms, that those people never have to worry about money transmission regulation. It is harder to accomplish because we need an act of Congress, but it's definitely one of the biggest things that we feel uh, we need to fight for. Yeah. So... And where we are now in terms of the where there's some gray area and even if you're just a minor, you could potentially be in trouble. Are there any angles on that that are opportunities rather than risks? Like, can I start a Bitcoin casino without risk? Or is there some way I can evade taxes using Bitcoin where I'm potentially safe? In the U.S.? <laughs> yeah. So... Um it's always going to come down to the specific, specific laws that govern the specific activities. I'll tell you right now that gambling is one of the areas where you're really not safe. Um, and gambling is actually really interesting, um, not just because I have some bad habits and end up losing money. But gambling is really interesting from a legal perspective um, because it's one of the um, chinks in the First Amendment armor that we actually have. To explain what I mean by that, um, generally someone who only designs software is pretty well protected by their First Amendment rights. Um, so this goes back to a case called um, Bernstein uh, versus the DOJ, I think. Um, and this was a, an, a, an early test of how First Amendment protections applied to people who were writing um, cryptographic-oriented software, or really just software in general. So Bernstein was a, a cryptographer who was publishing um, cryptography standards, of course. And at that time, uh, that those those uh, cryptographic functions, that, that software was classified as, uh, as basically a, a, a weapons. Uh, and we have um, very strict rules governing when you can share information about weapons or share weapons um, with foreign foreign states and such and such and such, and when you can publish these things, we have we have export control laws for weapons technology, and uh, so when he was publishing these these cryptographic standards, he was basically uh, there was an attempt to censor him to say you 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 can't be open with that software because that's weapons and you're exporting it basically to our enemies potentially. And the EFF and a number of other uh, important organizations, I think the ACLU probably as well, came to Bernstein's defense, basically, and said, look, he's publishing stuff you could write in a book. He could write the source code. He could write the machine code, for, you know, in a book and publish that book. Are you saying you're going to ban the distribution or sale of that book? And it turned out that in that case, Bernstein won. And so this was, this was um, a really important triumph in the early development of the laws that govern software design is that you have free speech rights to the software that you design, not just to the, you know, political words you write on a paper, but also potentially to the to the mathematical formulas and the software you write on a piece of paper or or onto the internet. Now, one area where this law doesn't hold up well is in gambling software. So there's another case whose case name has escaped me at the moment where uh, there was a company that was making uh, bookie software. So it would help you keep track of bets on horses, for example. And so you'd open a shop and you'd, you'd have people come in and watch the horse races on television and you'd keep a computer in the corner that would keep track of all the books for all the current bets of all the people in your, in your, in your gambling shop. And, um, 
And it would have other fun features, like if you press the right key combination, the screen would go blank or turn into solitaire. So, and the reason for that was if the cops burst in, you can you can hide evidence and maybe even automatically erase the books if that's something you're worried about from a from a law enforcement standpoint. Now, the developers of that software, even though all they did was develop the software, they didn't run the the bookmaking shops. Uh, the, they weren't bookies. They got in trouble for interstate. Uh, trafficking in gambling paraphernalia. And there was a free speech defense that was attempted in their case. You know, they said, hey, all these guys are doing is writing software. And the court said something along the lines of, and this is a, not the Supreme Court, this only went up to the appellate level, I'm, I'm fairly certain. The court said something like, well, yeah, but the speech has merged with the illegal activity because their software can only be used really for illegal gambling. That is now illegal speech. Um, and it's one of the few cases where a speech act um, and the development of software has not been given the kind of First Amendment protections we normally expect um, expect that act to get. And so this is, seems like a long digression, but the long and short of it is if you were to write a smart contract on Ethereum that does gambling— and God knows there are probably a fair number of people writing that <laughs> software right now. They're prediction markets. Yeah, or, or potentially a prediction market. You would not necessarily have robust First Amendment um, protections for your activities, and you might be very easily charged with interstate trafficking in gambling paraphernalia. God, that is such a shame. I think that <laughs> the stigma against gambling is so aggravating to me. It is so, so weird. It's so... Um, it is one of the great, uh, I, I hate to use this word here, but it's one of the great schizophrenias of our um, of our country, I think. Yeah, I mean, and, it, it goes back to a, a, a long history of what is considered, uh, you know, malum uh, prohibitum or malum in se or, or, or what is what is considered immoral, basically. And then and then that moral judgment is reified into law. And the, the standards around those tend to be really wishy-washy, too. Like, like when, does, when does my software merge with a, something you think is morally wrong to the point where you can prohibit me from writing software? Uh, por- pornography is another great case. W- what is pornography? What is obscenity? There's a great Supreme Court opinion uh, where basically it comes down to, uh, we have no good standard for what is obscene, but I know it when I see it. Right. Yeah, that's, cl- that's the classic. Um so how how are big institutions like banks investing in blockchain technology is this is this something where it's like they are legitimately investing in it or is it sort of like uh you know IBM with Watson where they're like hey we got AI or and it's more of like a you know just for show type of thing so sometimes the maybe the more charitable way of, of saying the just for show is we have blockchain as a strategy. <laughs> Not necessarily we're adopting a blockchain technology for real use in any kind of application, but we've got a blockchain strategy. Um, you know, uh, it, it really runs the gamut. So I think in some cases, these are big, older institutions that are simply worried about the so-called innovators dilemma and don't want to be caught off guard. But the innovator's dilemma basically says that they will be caught off guard because their expertise lies in a field of endeavor that is completely different than where they're being disrupted. Um, okay, so, so this the, is the like classic, the classic case. Yeah. This is a classic case of, of 
or of institutions trying to form fit the new technology to their pre-existing business model, like when Windows... Uh, I heard recently that like the early versions of Windows Mobile was basically the Windows uh, model where like they sold like you had to buy the operating system to right. put on your phone. Yeah, and it's just like the the classic case of like you try to form fit the the uh, or it's like you know I hear this in terms of Apple like they oh they're trying to put the phone interface on the watch and it's just the wrong they're, they're just trying to form fit the new technology. Right. Uh, against their pre-existing business model. Right. But then there are also some companies that are being extraordinarily progressive, actually. So Santander, uh, a, a major global bank, uh, I believe out of Spain, uh, recently announced a pilot program where they were going to put um, banknotes, so you know, basically a certificate of deposit of a sort, on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, that's probably the right approach, frankly. Um, and they're going ahead with it, which is pretty awesome. I mean, it's, it's going to take time to make things like that work, but we're not necessarily headed towards a future where the only currencies are cryptocurrencies. We could be in a, headed towards a future where there are cryptocurrencies, and then there are still you know fiat-denominated sums and balances that are issued by centralized organizations, but whose scarcity and movements are controlled because they're built on top of a decentralized computing system like Ethereum. So a smart bank would potentially be issuing currency of a sort, fiat currency, um, according to a, to an open ledger on, or layered on top of an open ledger like, like Ethereum. Um, that's very cool. And we'll see what happens there. And then the, the other big thing about banks and financial institutions playing with these technologies has to do with um, the architecture. So your readers may or your listeners may have heard of R3CEV, for example, or um, there's a few other companies like them who are planning on building um, closed or, um, you know, sort of uh, private or permissioned blockchain or blockchain like technologies that will facilitate interbank settlement or agreement between banks on contracts. And um, one of the interesting things about that is it, it, it in some ways, we can be pessimistic about it. We can say, oh, you just want to retain the same control you used to have. Um, it's permissioned or closed, meaning that maybe it doesn't have public read-write capability, or maybe the read capability is public, but you can't write to the to the blockchain unless you're a, a, one of the pre-identified uh, consortium members. Um, you could say that, that that could be, you know, sort of a just trying to hold on to their, um, to their control. And, and in a cynical way, doomed to fail. But it's also kind of like um, the days of the early internet when you had a lot of companies who were playing with TCPIP and setting up their own private intranets who eventually then connected to the global internet because they saw the value proposition but weren't initially comfortable enough to jump fully in. Um, so that, that, that's, that's one of the general tropes that we're seeing emerge in, in how financial institutions are coming to this is that they want... They want a system that still has some level of control. They're not ready to go full open blockchain network and just play on Bitcoin. And some of that could even be regulatory, potentially. Um, you're supposed to know your counterparties on a, on a regulated financial network. And so if transactions are being mined by a miner in Iran, that makes you feel uneasy because you at bank are worried about talking to a regulator about why that just happened. Although I would say from a legal analysis standpoint, there aren't actually that many big impediments to banks using open networks right now, assuming they build some sort of 
sensible layer on top of it that only allows their customers to transact with you know known entities or something like that. But maybe that takes all the value out of the network as well. Anyway, I've said a lot of things. I hope they're sensible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and we didn't even get into Ripple. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, well, I think this is a great place to stop. Um, I, I enjoy talking to you. I I think people who are interested in this policy stuff around Bitcoin, this is going to be a evolving area, and I think CoinCenter is a great repository for material. There are lots of white papers and articles on the CoinCenter website, so go check it out if you are interested in this policy stuff. Um, And thanks for coming on the show, Peter. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun, Jeffrey. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.